This is Catalog and Cocktails. Presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. Live from Austin, Texas, it's Catalog and Cocktails. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverage in hand. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada, a principal scientist here at Data.World. And it's Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the day, towards end of the day. And it's time to take that break and talk about data. Before I go into our topic and our guest today, I just want to remind people next week is Data Council Austin. We are super excited because finally more conferences and it's going to be here in Austin. Uh, we are actually going to be organizing an exclusive get together with uh, past and future guests of Catalan Cocktails. And we want to reach out to all the listeners. So if you're listening right now and you're coming to Austin for the Data Council, we want you to join us for our little get together to say thank you. We couldn't have been, I mean, this is all thanks to you, you all. Uh, we're going to be get to, getting together the day before the conference on Tuesday, March 22nd at 7 p.m. Tim and I will be there. I think Patricia Thane will be there, Sarah Catanzaro, our future guest, Chan Sanderson, I think, and more folks. So please sh shoot me an email at juan at data.world, or you can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and we're going to tell you where our special uh, get-together is. We want to kind of keep yeah. it private first for all the get the guests and our, our listeners, and then we'll we'll open it up. So really yeah, excited for that. to see you there. Yeah. Well, with that, I want to, talking about guests, the following guest is a truly special guest because this is somebody who has been a true follower of data, of Catalan Cocktails from the beginning. And actually, I don't know when he started following us, and I would probably say it's almost from day one. Uh, yeah, this like guest is two or three. It's we'll we'll, we'll right find out. And this guest is <laughs> Shane Gibson. He's the co-founder of AgileData.io. And Shane is somebody who I've just enjoyed over now the years to be interacting with him. Um, originally, if people remembered when we were doing Catalan Cocktails, it was a Zoom call and we would only do it for 30 minutes. We would stop the recording and then whoever was on the call would have these discussions. And Shane was always there and always just having phenomenal discussions. And we keep these conversations going on on Twitter and LinkedIn. And Shane, it's just a pleasure and honor to finally having you here. So how are you doing, Shane? I'm doing good. Thank you. Yeah. Long time listener. First time caller. So thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> and Shane, We're you so are actually the first, the first guest who's joining us from, uh, I like to jokingly say this, from the future. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day already where you're from. Uh, how's, how's, stuff, how's everything going in New Zealand? And which leads us to what are we toasting for? What are we drinking? Let me, you can kick it off first. <laughs> yeah. So it's 10 a.m. on Thursday for me. So uh, while uh, being a good Kiwi, having a beer at this time of the morning is not unusual. I've uh, got a bit of work to do this afternoon. So for me, I've got a little drink that's made up with a short espresso, a bit of ice, and tonic, uh, which gives you a non alcoholic kind of sweet coffee flavored refreshment. So if you have a hot, give it a go. And uh, what am I toasting? I think, you know, one of the upsides of the chaos that's happened over the last couple of years for people that are at the bottom of the world like me is the ability to have remote sessions like this. Three or four years ago, we had to travel for 24 hours to go to a conference. Now we're lucky enough to be able to hop on a Zoom call or attend something like this and actually connect with people 
the same as us around the world in the data space. So for me, that's been one of the, the few upsides of what's happened. So toast that. Yeah, cheers. Cheers to that. I think that has truly really changed how we perceive this. Uh, Tim, how about you? What are you drinking? What are you toasting um, for? I am drinking a Paloma today, just kind of keeping things simple. Uh, grapefruit with tequila. Um, and, you know, I'll toast to that as well, Shane. It's really awesome that, you know, you joined our community of cataloging cocktails so early with such great ideas and such high engagement. And uh, it's so uh, great that, you know, despite all, um, you know, the the crazy things that are going on in the world and, and everything that we've had to deal with for the last couple of years here with the pandemic and so on, um, that um, at the same time, we've also found found a way to stay connected and to deepen our connections with each other, regardless of where we are in the globe. And so really excited to have you as part of this community, Shane, and, and excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, and uh, well, I'm having, uh, I think it is called the cable car or cable car-ish. I have it. It's a spice rum, orange liqueur. I opened up my bar and I'm like, I see these two things. Like, what do I make with it? And it's called a cable car, you know. But I put some agave syrup and some lime sparkling water. So that's my drink today. And I want to cheers on, on the community that we've been creating around the podcast. And I have to say, this week is South by Southwest. And I've been attending several sessions and, and actually been focusing on podcast sessions. I want to go learn what, what's going out there. And I have to say, like, everything that we've been doing here, uh, people have been really impressed. Like I've been telling, we're doing these live uh, recordings, and people are like, "That's ninja stuff." Like I would not want to go do that. And like you don't edit and stuff. I was like, you know. And uh, as we were telling Shane, like we do this all on the fly. I mean, we we come up with the lightning round questions. Uh, they're not scripted. Like we come up with this on the fly. So with that, uh, cheer, cheer, cheers to being able to get connected here through the podcast. So Shane, really appreciate that. So cheers. Hmm. So our, our quick warm-up funny question today is, Shane, as a longtime fan of the podcast, who's your favorite host, and why isn't it Tim? <laughs> yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, so we have to look at it from a data point of view, right? Oh. we're all data geeks. And uh, I didn't have enough time to go and actually get the data points. But what I would do is, is I'd think about who makes the best one-liners. You know, don't boil the ocean, brakes on the car, it'll make you go faster, not slow you down. And so I don't actually have the factual data, but I have a feeling that, one, you tend to use them more often. Now, I don't know whether Tim actually invented them and you're just using them, but, uh, yeah, that's how I would actually <laughs> judge from me. Is, uh, love love those one-liners uh, because they are actually real, right? Don't boil the ocean. Yeah, don't, don't spend three years doing something. Do it quick. Do it fast. Learn from it. Right. So, uh, yeah, until I've got the real data, it's got to be you one. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> yeah. Driven. I, I can't wait for my shirt that says don't boil the ocean. I think talking about that, we, we will get shirts out and a lot of merchandise and have a bunch of this stuff. So uh, I've already seen some sneak peeks about it. So I'm really excited about that. So um, yeah, sorry, Tim. About you got to come well. up with more one liners. Uh, I, I got to come up with more one-liners and, you know, we were, we were having a funny conversation internally at data.world the other day that we were saying like, man, Juan has like all the color commentary and Tim, you're kind of the straight man. And like, you know, that's, that's important. Like that's valuable, but like, you know, you don't get to like kind of jump out of your seat and hop up and down. And I'm like, you know what, one of these days we're going to do like a role reversal and, and Juan, you're going to be super calm and, and, and I'm going to be jumping out of my sheet, uh, my seat and grabbing the camera. So we're going to, we're going to do that one of these days. <laughs> I think somebody needs to literally be here with me and grab me. Otherwise, I don't know how I can, I can control myself. But You're going to be anyway, in a right. chair. 
let, let, let's uh, let's jump into the honest, no BS discussion. All right, Shane. Let's do it. What does Agile mean in the context of data? So, yeah, when, when you ask people what Agile means, you'll get 101 answers, right? You'll get Scrum, you'll get Lean, you'll get Flow, you'll get Kanban, you'll get uh, Inspect and Adapt, right? You'll get uh, Iterate, you'll get Timebox. For me, with the teams I've worked with, I kind of come back to it's a mindset. Right, it's a mindset of looking at the way you're working, figuring out what's not working for you, uh, trying to identify some patterns or practices that may make that way of working better, and then experimenting with them and seeing if they do fix the problem you have, then adopt them, and if they don't, find something else. If we look at the Agile Manifesto, right, if we look at individuals and interactions over processes and tools, we know that that's important, right? So most teams that are successful, you know, they talk to each other, they work together, they have processes and tools in the background, but it's not their focus, right? Following the script is not what they do. Um, we look at the one around working software over comprehensive documentation. Um, so yeah, from a data world, we don't talk about software, we talk about valuable data. Um, and we all should agree that documentation is important, right? We have to do some documentation. It's not that we don't, but it's not our focus, right? Writing things down is something we do when it has value, not the thing we do at the beginning of any process. Um, and customer collaboration over contract negotiation, hell yeah, right? We should be talking to our end users, to our customers, the people who are going to get value from the data about what they want, not what we think they want. Um, and if they change their mind, that's okay, right? There's a cost and a consequence, but that that is okay. So that's, you know, the last one, responding to change over following a plan. So for me, you know, it's, it is a mindset, right? It's a feel when I go in and work with a team, I will, a new team, I'll tend to observe them for a while because I want to see how they are currently working uh, and then, you know, help them change the things that aren't working for them. And so in the agile world, there's lots of practices and patterns that we can adopt that help us do that quicker and faster and better. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my view at the moment. Last man a year, I would have inspected and adapted it a little bit, hopefully. So, so let me repeat this because this is really nice how you how how you're presenting it, right? So it's more of a mindset, and you want to identify the patterns that work for you, right? Uh, and and th and these things evolve, so we want to go experiment, right? You you may have a script, but following that script may not be the crucial thing to go do. Yes, documentation is important, but it's not, but it provides value. It shouldn't be the focus of things. But hey, you may be doing something you realize it's not working because we lack documentation. So you need to go iterate on that. And then in the next iteration, we will add more documentation. And, and, and at the end of the day, you really need to be providing value to the end users. And it's fine if they actually change their mind about things, but yeah, okay, let's go change it, but acknowledge that that is going to have some consequences and we'll, let's go deal with it and go iterate and keep continue. So that that's kind of my summary in, in my own words, what you said, anything to add there? Are we on the same page? I liked it. I like this definition. Yeah. Yeah, um, for me, yeah, the challenge is always find me an end user or a customer that doesn't change their mind. Uh, and, and half the time, it's not their fault, right? Things have changed, right? The organization's changed, the market's changed, COVID hit, right? Everything changes on them. So how do we pretend that by locking something in and not letting them change when everything else changes, that that's valuable, that you know, we're serving them well by, by locking them into that that box of not letting them adapt when they need to adapt because of us, right? So, you know, for me, it's that, that idea of adaption, right? Change is constant. All right. So yeah. let, let, let's let's get more concrete around this because this is just talking about agile in general, but what does it still mean to be agile in the context of data? So 
Agile kind of came out of the software industry, if I think about it, right? That's kind of where the genre is. We have XP, we have a whole lot of practices around uh, software engineering. And a lot of those practices and patterns are applicable in data, but data is kind of weird, right? And it's taken me a while to figure out some things that make data different when we're adopting agile ways of working. Um, and I still don't have the, the answer, right? I can't give you the one line of data is different because. But here's some examples. Um, people tend to find it easier to decompose features in an application than decompose data. Right. We think about, uh, let's think about shopping cart, right? We have the ability to add something to a shopping cart. We have the ability to view the shopping cart. We have the ability to check out. We can think of those as unique features. So when we're iterating our work, we can break those things down. We can describe them, the team know what they're working on. When we think of data, we tend to think of a big amorphous blob. You know, we've got all our sales data. And so teams struggle to go, well, well, how do I decompose it down to a smaller piece of work that still has value that I can deliver early and then work on the next bit? So I think that's one of the challenges um, in data. I think the other one is we don't control the data. If we're building software, we control how things are entered. We control the user experience. In the data world, typically, we get given a pile of poo, right? We get given stuff that doesn't fit the core business processes, right? It's dirty, it's it's messy, it's not structured the way we want. It has things in it that are wrong. So we're we're not in the control of the end-to-end -end process because we we collect the data from somebody else. And that's a real challenge, right? We have to do extra work that our uh, software engineering brethren don't. Hmm. That makes sense. And so there's obviously some differences between sort of the challenges that data teams have to face when they're trying to take an agile approach. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that doesn't change the fact that agile can be really valuable for these data teams and should be really a central part of how they operate. Um, do you, um, do you feel like a lot of data teams are agile or do you feel like there's quite a big gap? Uh, I'm seeing more and more of it. So I think uh, for the data teams, we are we are years behind uh, the software engineering teams, but we're trying to catch up. Uh, I see most teams now that I work with and most people I talk to adopting some agile practices and patterns. Yeah, so the old days of, of true, you know, let's look at Waterfall where we would do a requirements document for six months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't see a lot of that anymore. Uh, I see a lot of ad hoc, right? So. Uh, you know, that's a, it's a different pattern. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely see uh, agile and, and different words for it, right? So, you know, we'll talk about it later, but data ops, data mesh, there's a lot of agile mindset in those things that have been described. Um, patterns that I can look at and say, well, hell, that's, you know, teams that I've described as being uh, incredibly agile, uh, they behave those ways. Um, so, yeah, I see we see different names for it, but lots of the patterns and practices are changing. Yeah, definitely phrases like data ops seem to be becoming much more popular recently to capture some of this pattern, as you call it. Maybe we can go into these patterns a little bit uh, more deeply, right? So you mentioned waterfall, you mentioned ad hoc, obviously things like Scrum and Kanban are mentioned a lot in the context of Agile, right? Um, could you walk through these things a little bit and just explain kind of, you know, just really quickly what they are and, and, and which of these are best for data? Like, is there a particular pattern that you see being more effective done a certain way? Yeah. So, you know, if you remember the days in data where we used to argue Kimball over Inman, uh, 
you know, as technologists, we love to have religious arguments over the thing we think works the best. Uh, and we do it lots. I do a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and, and enjoy it. Um, so if we think about the agile world, there's lots of uh, frameworks or methodologies, right? And I, I think of them as patterns. So Scrum is probably you know, the one that's the mind the most. And, and Scrum, if you look at it from a pattern point of view, what's it about? It's about batching up your work, right? It's about taking a bunch of work moving it down into smaller batches, uh, having uh, iteration, a period of time that you're going to focus on taking something from the beginning to the end uh, and deliver that value to your customer. And we're effectively putting in artificial constraints, right? We're saying we're going to time box it at two to three weeks and you need to have pushed that value out to your end customer. And by doing that, that forces us to change our behavior because now we're, we're constrained, right? We have to change the way we work because of that. So I tend to see uh, most teams when they start off will start off with Scrum because it seems to be more well-known. Uh, it is well-described. There are lots of courses on it. Um, so you know, education is accessible. If we actually look though at a way a data team works, they're more what I call flow-based. They are more like a factory. Uh, there are a bunch of stages or stations. We collect the data, you know, we combine and clean the data. Um, we go and present the data and then give it to them in a way it can be consumed. You know, we, we look at reference data, we look at master data, right? There's a whole lot of things we do. So if you think of it as factory, there's a bunch of stations and we kind of pass it over to the next station. They do the little bit of work and we, we pass it on. But what I find is if a team starts off by trying to implement a true flow-based model, so if we use some of the Kanban or Lean processes, their, their way of working doesn't change a lot, right? And therefore, their adoption to that change doesn't seem to be as great than if they start off with Scrum. So I tend to, when I work with a team, I tend to encourage them to, to start with Scrum. And then as they, as they work and optimize the way they work, move back to more of a flow. Now, that is, is quite a permissive approach as an agile coach. And a lot of the people in the coaching world disagree strongly with me. Uh, and, and doing that, right? That we, we talk about should we provide patterns and encourage people in a way to work or should we just let them find their own way? You know, should a coach have been on the field, you know, to be an agile coach in data? Should you have actually done data work or uh, can you just be a good coach, right? So there's a whole lot of depends as a way. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I, I totally get your point about like, some some folks in the agile coaching space, especially may really want to take a more, dogmatic approach to sort of how you how you go at some of these processes because to, to really encourage good patterns and and kind of sticking to it versus kind of like uh, allowing folks to find sort of their own pattern that works for them because you know obviously companies do that over time but especially when you're teaching them the muscles and, and getting them through the the pattern and, and learning the pattern it can be a challenge um you know the few times that i've been in companies where we've had an agile coach they've definitely come in very strong with like you're going to do scrum. This is exactly what you're going to do, right? You're going to, you're going to on Tuesday mornings, we're going to do this Thursday mornings. We're going to do this, right? Um, obviously the world of data is a little bit different, but, um, but a lot of these practices, uh, apply as you're mentioning, um, you know, do you see that, um, that, uh, companies get a lot of benefit if they kind of start with scrum, get used to that. And, you know, how long do they need to really get used to that before they can start kind of finding their own way? Is there, is there sort of a method to, to finding your own unique approach to, to the patterns? So two, two things on that. So for me, agile is about the team have a better way of working. 
you know, they should be working in a way that it's more fun, right? They're feeling more success of achievement. Uh, they're in control of their destiny, right? They're self-organizing, they're controlling the work that they do. And as a result of that, the organization gets benefit. I'm not a great fan of the, the current McDonald's behavior where certain large consultancies are rolling out Spotify as a model uh, and saying that will reduce your staff in the organization by 25%, right? That for me is not what it's about. It's about changing the way you work because if you don't, your organization won't survive. And we enable our teams to change the way they work and we, we reap the benefit of that. Um, if we take a team that is starting their journey and we're applying an iteration process, so let's call it Scrum, uh, we will tend to see somewhere around three to six iterations before they start rocking it, right? They, because effectively, we're disrupting the way they work. And that's really key for the stakeholders to understand. Um, yeah, I, I kind of talk about uh, one of the important things we need when a team's starting their journey is an umbrella, right? A senior person who's going to hold the umbrella above the team and stop all the brown stuff hitting them for a while. Because what we do is we break their cycle, we break their way of working, we tell them to completely change what they do and therefore uh, things don't go so well at the beginning. And then after three to six iterations, they tend to have gone back to forming uh their own new way of working and it, it seems to gel right now if after three to six iterations they're not then we've got a fundamental problem to work with within either the team or the organization um because yeah we, we haven't gone back to that that stage and we typically in my experience we would have so i i really like these two patterns that you're presenting right like the scrum I mean, you break you break the work into smaller pieces, right? You have, I mean, yes, you can add these constraints, but there's that's something you would start with, and then you have the flow base, right? Like, the 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 factory, they have stages. Wouldn't you? I'm, I'm, what's going through my head is like these different stages, as you mentioned, are different stations. They have, wouldn't they be doing also a sort of a scrum within their own stage? So it's like a team within a team that you start seeing. Like, isn't there some sort of a hybrid that can be done? Because I can imagine, like, if I'm, if there's a team who's in charge of, what's, I don't know, like cleaning data or, or, or doing data quality or I'm not truly like that, but there, I mean, different stations, like, they're going to get a bunch of work that needs to get done. And they also need to organize, organize that. And they're like, I'm going to deliver this, this to you this week and then the following week. Um, wouldn't that be a mix about this? So, I'm not a great fan of hybrids on day one because hybrids are complex. I'm not a great fan of matrix fair, models on day one because fair point, fair point. And, and, sorry, and just to go yep. back to your point is original point is you want to start with something and then see if it works and you kind of iterate and change. So I would agree with you that you wouldn't start from hybrid from day one. You would choose one and then something would eventually be morphing into that. So yeah, and. And we want to help the team be successful, right? If we think about we're disrupting everything they do, right? We're removing the rug from under them. We want to give them as much safety as we can. So let's give them things that are well described, that are known patterns at work and, you know, get them successful with that and then let them generate their own ways of working. Um, so one of the major problems we have is scale, right? It's not a problem just for Agile. It's a, scale, a problem globally. So you know, a team that are two pizza boxes, you know, we talk about between three and nine people, we know that they can collaborate well together, right? You talk about the lines of communication, how many of them, we know that works. Um, so let's start off with that, right? Let's get that way of working going and then let's scale. And then we may decide to scale using a flow-based model. And if we do that, then we, we focus on different things. Now we focus on how we hand work off to another team another squad, another pod, uh, how we articulate what we've done and what we would like them to do, 
how they accept that work, uh, how they know that the work they're accepting is fit for purpose. It's, it's done or done, done, right? Uh, or And so we have a, a thing called definition of ready, right? Where uh, we will write down the things that we want to tick off before we believe that work's ready to be done. And we do that within Scrum and we should do that within uh, Flow. Within Flow, we focus about cycle times. We start using data. How fast do things move through the system? Where are the blockers? How do we unblock them? Uh, when there's a stoppage or an outage from, you know, Kanban, right? How do we actually all swarm and stop that happening, right? And just fix that problem so that the system can start moving. So each of the patterns come with different focuses, different things we should look at. Um, and so again, you just got to be really clear which one you're doing. So, you know, if you've adopted a, a scrum pattern, then be very clear that it's a scrum pattern. Um, so, yeah, one of the challenges is how do you take a piece of data work and go from an idea to a user that's consuming it for value in a time box that's two to three weeks? And, and that's really hard. So you will see teams use a technique around pipelining, right? Where they'll do one iteration, which is more discovery prototyping and a second two to three week iteration, which is more building the core code and then a third iteration around visualization. Now, I'm not a great fan of that. I tend to want the teams to work uh, in a end-to-end -end cycle and, and decompose the work to be done down in a different way. Um, but if pipelining is working for them, great. I think the last thing, um, the difference for me between iteration-based and flow-based is flow-based, we start to think about hyper-specialization. With Scrum or iteration, we start, we talk about cross-skilled uh, teams and T-skills and that everybody in the team can work together to get the work done. And I think what we're seeing in the data world right now is we're, with the whole idea of analytics engineers, uh, we're moving back to hyper-specialization. And personally, I tend to prefer cross-skilled teams, it's more fun and I find it more successful. Interesting. This is uh this is some good advice here around around how to how to really get more iterative and more um more value out of the data work that you're doing and some different approaches that you can take. And I think a lot of our listeners are probably really appreciating the specificity here and some different approaches. Um, well, one thing that was interesting just before we move on to another topic, uh, that came up in some of our conversations leading up to our podcast today with you was that you had mentioned that, um, sprints should probably actually be, if you're doing a sprint based approach should be three weeks instead of two. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why, why, why you said that? So with Scrum and in the Agile world, we, we talk about two week iterations and you know, after we had a chat, I went to Google it, right? I tried to research where did two weeks come from? And I can't find the, the job, you know, where it started, the genesis of that. I mean, there's 101 articles of why two weeks is great. You know, four weeks is too long. You know, one week is, is too short. One day is incredibly hilarious. Try and get your teams to do a one day sprint. That's so funny, right? Um, do some companies so do that? Find, though, uh, we've done it. it, it okay. It's hilarious. <laughs> like, if you think about it, you know, there's no reason why you can't decompose the work down into a batch of one day. You try and do that with six people, it's, it's great fun. Uh, never had it been successful. Um, you, you do sprint planning with a coffee and then you do demos with a beer, right? <laughs> yeah, so sprint planning from a scrum point of view, we tend to time box it based on the length of the sprint, right? So if you've got a two week sprint, your sprint planning is typically a certain size, a certain amount of time. If you do it for four weeks, 
then it's longer, right? If you do it for one week, it's shorter uh, because we're we're trying to break the work down into smaller batches. Um, what I find is for some reason when I start with a new data analytics team, getting them to start off with three weeks becomes more natural for them. It, the only reason, you know, I kind of look at it and I think about it, and I can kind of see a pattern where they spend the first week exploring and prototyping the data, and they spend the second week kind of dealing with the model and the code, and then the third week is more the viz or the last mile way they make it consumable. Um, it becomes the natural flow of the team, and they get successful. And, and don't get me wrong, getting a team to go from an idea to a consumable information product in three weeks is incredibly difficult. Um, but I have worked with some teams that have been you know, gifted enough and brilliant enough to do it. Uh, so for me, I say start off with three. Now, what would typically happen is a non-data agile coach, one who hasn't been on the field before. Uh, I had it the other day, you know, working with an organization, agile coach turns up, goes, oh, they're all working in three weeks. That's ridiculous. We've got to move into two. And I'm like, dude, uh, why? Just, just watch, right? If, if, if they can get to two, great. But let's observe them first, right? Let's see if three is working for them. It's their call. It's their way of working, right? And again, I reiterate, it's their way of working. We're just there to help them based on our experience and the practices and patterns we've seen be successful before. I love how you're being very pragmatic about this. And it's like, I mean, you don't have to go follow the Bible exactly how it is. It's like whatever is working for your team and keep observing and then go improve around that stuff. And then, as you say, they eventually got down to two weeks. Great. All right. And I think that that really depends on, on the team and how they work together, which leads me to think about more in the what are the roles, right? So what are the roles that you're seeing within data teams or being agile? Like what are the different patterns that you're seeing within people in the roles? So, so if we think about data as a supply chain, um, you know, it, it, it is a factory, right? We have data that comes in, we do some stuff to it, data gets consumed. Um, and for people out there, there's a really great uh, TED talk called How to Make Toast. Uh, it, it's one that I, I take all the teams I, I help uh, through on day, right, right at the beginning. And it talks about nodes and links. In fact, you'll love it because it's based on graph theory. Um, and so, you know, it talks about there's a thing to be done and then there's a link to another thing to be done. Uh, and so I actually get teams to, to on a big wall and or on a Miro board, um, if we're remote, to, to document the way they're working around now, right? So a node is a thing that you do, a task, and then, you know, what's the next task and how do we order that work? Um, so if we think about that, you know, let's get the team starting off with that and then uh, figuring out where the nodes aren't working for them. And then they focus on how do they fix that problem. And if we think about that, then what we should look is all the roles, right? So there is, uh, when we talk about T-skills, right, it kind of goes like this. We have a bunch of skills that we know uh, are needed for in the data world. So we have facilitation skills. How do we gather these requirements out of our customers' heads on what they want? We have uh, a way of modeling the data. We have a way of writing code to change the data to, to do bad things to it so it's easier to use. We have people that are really good at visualizations. We have people that are good at machine learning models or um, writing statistical code. So we have people that are good at documentation. We have people that are good at QA and testing. So we need all those skills in the team if we're using a batch, right? If we're, if we're using an iteration. Um, and so what we do is we typically, I'd, I'd go and um, identify all those skills. I'd get the team to talk about their, their strong T's, so where they're really strong and their secondary T's, where they're quite good at it, and then the things that they hate, right? Because that's the things they never want to do, so they're bad at it. And then we overlay that and we say, where's the gaps in the team? 
right? And you can look at it and you go, hey, we've got uh, very little testing skills. Cool. So what do you want to do? Do you want to upskill the team or do you want to bring in another team member? Uh, that has those skills to cross-pollinate the team. And so what we're looking for is self-organizing end-to-end skills. So, and the reason for that, and this is the key, is that team is no longer dependent on anybody else. They can now be in control of the work to get done and amongst themselves, they can decide how to remove a blocker. As soon as they're dependent on somebody else, we have a natural blocker in the flow, right? They have to stop and wait for somebody else. And that person or that team, the work being asked to be done may not be that team's priority. Right. And so now that whole batch, that whole window, it's gone because it might take three days, but the team doesn't have three days to wait anymore. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why we talk about cross skills. And I'm a great fan of cross skills. The other thing I like about it, it's fun. The team kind of learn new stuff, right? They're not handing it over to you know the data modeler that sits in their cupboard for six months, building out this beautiful canonical entity model that nobody will ever use. Right. They're in there modeling the data going, hey, how's this working? and they learn more and that's just more enjoyable. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up cross cross skilling. Do you, do you feel like today or the current state of things that data teams are actually a little over specialized and they need to be there needs to be a little bit more sort of meshing of uh, of skills? Meshing of skills. Uh yes, we are hyper specializing roles. Uh, we see this wave every six to seven years. We go to hyper-specialization. We see uh, vendor washing of the market to bring out tools that are very, very specific to that specialization. And then we watch it all collapse and go back to end-to-end tools and uh, cross-skilled teams, right? So uh, I'm a great fan of cross-skilled teams. So I'm just waiting for the, the wave to hit again. Uh, until <laughs> uh, yeah. then, I'm just going to rant on hyper-specialization. <laughs> Uh, I feel you on that one. That's one of the reasons why I'm excited about analytics engineers as kind of an emerging one. Not not because it's a yet another skill set, because that can also be a, an interpretation of it. Is right, like oh DBT, it's yet another thing, right? But I'm I'm kind of hoping that actually analysts and engineers start to come together a little bit more, and we see more of these sort of you know. Uh, you know, whether you call it a full stack or whatever you want to call it type of data person who can kind of operate in a more broad way. I think this is going to help sprint teams accomplish more and, and, uh, and be a little more dynamic. So, so what are the things we've been talking here a lot about the data work, but I want to go talk about what is the actual deliverable, which brings up the topic around of data products and stuff like that. And, 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 and we've had this conversation before and I've seen you commented on LinkedIn and stuff of like, you don't call it a, one thing is a data product, but another thing is an, an information product, and are we also going to have a wisdom product, a knowledge product? Or, but uh, <laughs> I saw you posting that one the other day. But no, I'd love to get your perspective because I, I we talk about data products, and everybody's talking about data products. But you had a different take on it with this whole notion of an information product. So I'd love if you can kind of uh, provide some insights on that. Yeah. So an organization I was working with a while ago, probably eight nine years ago, um, we tried to figure out how do we how do we decompose the work to understand the data requirements uh, in a way that that's quick, right? Where we're not boiling the ocean, right? We're saying, okay, what, what are a couple of things we need to produce first? And how do we put some boundaries around them? Um, and that team came up with the term information product, right? And so we worked on, okay, well, if we're going to go work with some customers and, and want to understand what they want to do, what questions could we ask them? And how could we box it, right? So we talked about... Uh, a bunch of patterns that are already out there. So there's a, a concept of a vision statement that came from crossing the, the chasm from uh, from Jeffrey Moore. And that's a way of having a natural language sentence, you know, um, as a 
you know, I want to do this because, you know, so kind of a user story, but a little bit more that's in there. Um, and then we looked at what business questions do we want to answer? You know, how many, how much, how long, you know, how many customers we've got, how long does it take to acquire them, um, how much money are we making out of them? Um, and we looked at core business processes, you know, using a, a, a pattern called Beam from Lawrence Core. So who does what, you know, custom orders product. And we found all these things that we could actually have a natural language business conversation with somebody and then write it down in a short format. And at that time we had a document that we used, a, a really short template. Since then, a couple of the other teams I've worked with, uh, we've iterated on that to make it a canvas based on the business canvas. And so for me, the focus was always around information right? Because it's what does the person want to consume? And uh, typically what they want to consume is an answer to a question so they can make a business decision, right? And, and we call that information. Now, we miss the market, right? Because everybody's calling it data products. Um, and so I've struggled with that a little bit. And then we came out with data as a product. And so I'm starting to try and get clarity around the patterns. And the way I describe it is data as a product means our customer is another data person or a system that needs data. Right? We're delivering data as a product that has a whole lot of patterns. It should be discoverable, self-describing. We should have a contract when it's going to deliver it. We should know the quality of it because that's the data that we're buying. But if you go and ask a consumer, an end user, a stakeholder, nine times out of the 10, they don't want a piece of data. They want some information that helps them make a decision. That may be a dashboard, a report. It may be using a reverse ETL tool to punch some data into Salesforce. So when somebody's calling in, I can see, you know, the last problem they logged. Uh, that's information that we're going to use. Um, now, I'm not going to go and do wisdom products and knowledge products. Um, and I, I, the only way I can ever describe those things is using the example of a tomato. Um, and, you know, that works for me. But um, yeah, for me, I, I want to focus on the information that our customer wants or the data that uh, the data user or the system requires. So for me, that's the, the difference. So I, I, I like this. This is a very important distinction because we're always talking about data. I mean, now the, with the whole data mesh uh, conversations, data product is something that we're always talking about. And, and I think people still struggle on what is this data product? I mean, Tim and I have been working on, uh, we're going to share a document next year, next what, next week with everybody. Uh, um, we've been coming up with this ABCDE framework of what is uh, a data product, right? A data product needs to have a, accountability, boundaries, contracts, and expectations, downstream consumers, and explicit knowledge. And um, I don't want to go into, we'll get into that later, but but this is aligned to there, somebody's consuming actual, actually the the bits, right? And 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 those bits can be manifested in depending on how the consumer of those bits want it. I want it as an as an API, probably. I want it as a tabular form, or I want it as a SQL interface. I want it as a graph interface, and uh, yada yada yada, right? But there is like there there it is a technical more kind of uh, consumption layer. But I like how, you, how there's a distinction is that the information product is something that it's going to go even further off, right? It's the, uh, I would actually say that the a, a type of a dashboard or Tableau dashboard that actually provides the answer to it, that is a type of information product. And I think I, I, I've been seeing some of the conversations with uh, following on LinkedIn with um, Joseph Hillary, right? He's, he's an analyst at Eric's uh, Eckerson, right? And he's been talking about this too, like dashboards are data products. And I, I've seen him writing about this. So this is a kind of call out for, I, th I think Joseph Hillary is doing some great writing. Uh, I really like the stuff he's doing. Mm -hmm. 
But I don't agree with him as, oh, I would consider a dashboard type of a data product. But the way you're framing it right now, Shane, I do, if we change the name, I mean, words matter here. And I think information product is, it's that dashboard that's being consumed. It's that end connection that happens to go through some reverse ETL, whatever, that shows up in the Salesforce thing, right? The end consumer goes to the Salesforce, they're actually getting the product that they wanted, right? It's, I mean, a data product was probably involved in that process, but it's not what they're what they're consuming. I'm seeing you, what do you think? I'm seeing you looking in different directions, so. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm just thinking it through. So, um, so if we think about uh, data and information product, right? One of the key things is, is it's not just the dashboard. It is the code and the data that gets us there, right? So it is a, a boundary from the beginning to the end. Um, the way I tend to describe it is if you think about an app on your phone, right? You go in there and you've got, uh, you've got Twitter, right? It's, it's an app. It has a boundary, right? There's a bunch of data for an audience uh, that wants to achieve an outcome. And then when I go in and I play Heyday, you know, uh, that's an app on my phone and it has some different data and I'm still the audience, but I'm using it for a different reason. I'm taking a different outcome or action from it. You know, one is to rant about uh, vendor washing of technology and one is to some downtime to, you know, feed my animals. Um, and that's how I think about an information product. You know, it may be a dashboard, it may be a report, but the key thing is we ask our customers what they want. If they want a piece of data, we give them a piece of data. You know, if they want uh, a dashboard that's pretty so they can make a decision, that's what we give them. So the mechanism we deliver it to should be aligned with the way our customer wants to consume it. We should make it easy for them. Um, but that product it has to contain the end-to-end -end stuff. And then we get into scaling problems, right? How do we make sure the data is reusable, that when we define customer, we define and share it in the same way. We don't have 16 definitions of a customer, active customer in each data product. And so we get into scaling problems, but as technologists, that's our problem to solve, right? That's what we should be good at. Um, well, we should just give the customer what they want. So now, now I'm thinking is that what you're calling the information product, it, I'm seeing other people starting to go talk about data, data apps. And you can imagine then yeah. that the, that, I mean, the connection I'm making here is that the, what you're calling here information product is really what others seem to be calling a data app that will talk to a data product. The data app is, is the actual application, right? That is answering, that is providing the answer to the question. And Therefore, you can then argue, well, then is Tableau a data app? I'm saying, well, yeah, I right. probably. I mean, but uh, anyways, Some, probably sometimes, the sometimes the data is the product, but sometimes other things are. How much right? do so we kind of navigating all the semantics around that? How much do we even need to get hooked up on this? And maybe just like, uh, we're just kind of just talking blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so again, this is really important when we, when we help teams work in an agile way. Language is incredibly important. Uh, mm -hmm. When we talk about practices and patterns, we, when we call it an, uh, a tomato, we call it a tomato, right? We don't call it an orange um, because, you know, you put tomatoes in your fruit salad, bad things will happen. You put oranges in, we're good. Um, unless, of course, you like tomatoes in your fruit salad. Um, so we've got to be really careful on language. And that's why the, the whole data product, information product one, right, confuses me. I'm happy with a pattern and language that goes data as a product and information products because I can differentiate them. I can tell you how data as a product is different to an information product. And I can also describe how an information product may consume data as a product. Yeah, because that, yeah, if I think about it, if I could go and buy the data from a third party without having to write all the ELT, I would. Right? You're reducing the friction for me. You're, you're taking away some of the work that I no longer need to do. Why wouldn't I do that?
right? If that doesn't happen, then I've got to build my own piece of data to serve the, the customer. Yeah, no, this is a really good discussion. I think this is really, I mean, this is what people are thinking about right now. I think we're hungry for to be able to have this really concrete uh, discussion. I, one one thing I wanted to touch another on another aspect is we've been also having these conversations on Twitter is about knowledge, right? I mean, I think the other day you were talking about kind of you uh, have customer IDs, right? And, and and like without them, how do we know how we're going to go start integrating things? And I think. Uh, uh, Kent Graziano, right, from former from Snowflake, uh, chimed into that. Which, by the way, Kent, if you're listening to us, like we really want you to be on the show. I've already reached out to you. You've been called out as a guest, uh, and and I think what we really want is to have some agreement on the semantic meaning of what is a customer. All these all these uh, keys. How do you see? And we've been talking about data around this. Where is um, knowledge fitting in all this? So. For me, it comes back to shared language, right? So I'll give an example. Uh, working with a, a large financial company many years ago, we we wanted to describe customer uh, and we wanted to describe what an active customer was. So so we ran a workshop and we had the risk team, we had the finance team, we had the marketing team. It was a cluster, right? Like they were just arguing about the definition of active customer. And the problem was they were all correct. So the way risk defined an active customer from a regulatory reporting was different from the way uh, finance recognized it from a revenue recognition point of view, which was different to the way that marketing did. So marketing pretty much said, if you weren't dead and uh, you contacted us once, you were an active marketing customer. Finance said, well, if you're dead or your accounts are closed, uh, then actually you're not active. And then risk had a really you know, constrained uh, version of, of active customer from the regulatory point of view. So what we ended up doing was we ended up saying, okay, we're actually going to produce three different numbers, right? And they're going to have those words. We're going to talk about finance active customer and marketing active customer, RICS active customer. And we will never use the word active customer until the organization agrees the definition of that. And then that's mandated, right? It's a federated governance model, we would call it now. So for me, that works as a practice, as a process, as a pattern. But uh, how then do we implement that, right? If, if the data's in five different systems that holds a customer ID, we, again, it's a technical problem, right? We need ways of working that solve that problem for us, both technology and practice. Uh, th this is, we always say words matter. I think this is important to start thinking about the language and, and what you said, like, well, all right, let's just give, let's, if, if you, we're calling it customer and we can't agree, at least understand it's a customer for the domain of marketing and so forth. That's the first step we should go do. And, and then let's figure out where that friction is. So, um, Shane, I told we, we can keep talking. We got to, we got to jump now into our, our, our lightning round, uh, uh, section here. So, all right, we're going to move to the lightning round, uh, which is presented by data.world, the enterprise data catalog for the modern data stack. Well, again, very lucky we get to do those things at data.world. So, I'll kick it off. Is the bigger issue in agile data going from ad hoc process to an agile process? Or is it to go from like scrum to flow process? Uh, it's the team are changing the way the work they work. That change is hard. So ad hoc to agile, scrum to flow, flow to scrum, XP to safe. You're changing what you're doing. Change is hard. Change is hard. Mm. Tim, you go. So next question. If teams are very specialized, data teams, right? 
for example, let's say it's a data engineering team that's focused on a very specific part of the stack or specific area of the data, um, can Agile still work or, or do you need to refactor your teams? Yes, Agile can still work. The, the team can organize the way they work to make themselves more efficient, have more fun and deliver more value. It's in their control, regardless of how the organizational structure happens. Some organizational structures make it easier. Hmm. That's good. All right. Is the data product and data as a product paradigm going to make data teams life easier or harder? No. Harder. It's going to make harder. Change is hard, right? Uh, no. Using different words for the same thing and not describing it well uh, causes chaos and arguments. So I guess the lack of knowledge and semantics here agreed is what's going to make it hard. We just So let's... Again, we need to move to this knowledge first world to make sure that we get this as, as easier. Tim, you go. Next, All last right. one. Final lightning round. Are agile data teams and agile software teams going to start merging together? If data mesh is successful, yes. Uh, I don't think it will happen. Interesting. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's a great question. By the way, Shane, like we told you, we didn't have these questions. Um, 45 minutes, good questions. All right, we're gonna do a brand new uh, section to that right now. This is this came up from a discussion with Shane before. It's called the Mesh Minute. So Shane, I got my clock here. One minute, you can rant whatever you want about data mesh. I'm gonna stop you at the minute, right? Because we can go off for our Ready, set, go. Okay, so I've been quite vocal on data mesh. Uh, and what I want to call out is I want to call out the vendors that are vendor washing it. Um, yeah, so Mac has just finished the book with her thoughts of what data mesh is. Uh, how can we go and pretend that our legacy technologies that we wrote 10 years ago are mesh enabled? I mean, seriously, it's bollocks. So please stop doing it. If I look at the principles of mesh, you know, domain orientated, decentralized data. We, we talked about subject areas years ago. It's a good pattern, right? We should try and achieve it. Uh, data is a product. We should try and achieve it. Self-service data platforms. We should try and achieve it. Federated governance, right? Take it out of the teams and you know push it back into the teams to help them do it. We should try to do it. But we're at the beginning of that journey, right? We're, we're kind of, uh, it's a new way of working. Uh, don't pretend you've done it. Uh, and when you actually find something that's useful, share the pattern. That's uh, what I ask. That's what I hope for. Awesome. Perfect timing. Uh, and I have to say, I fully agree with you. I, I, I thought you were going to be a bit more controversial. I, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, well, what I always say, there's there's no data mesh vendor. You can't go buy data mesh. And anybody selling you a data mesh, please run away as fast as you can. And then all these pattern, all these pillars, everything individually, they have nobody. They just didn't come up; they were invented recently. No, they've always been existing. I think it's identifying which are these four ones to put together and how to go put it together. I think that's the interesting part. So, um, I think we're super aligned on that. So, all right. Uh, after the MM, we now go to TTT. Tim, take us away with your takeaways first. Let's do it. Let's do takeaways. Well, my first takeaway is that I love the mesh minute and I can't wait to keep on doing that. I think that's going to be a great little addition to the segment here. Um, but onto the actual topic at hand. Um, I loved that, uh, Shane, you talked about how 
agile means a lot of things and what's right for the company is going to be different depending on what their goals are, how they operate, the kinds of work that they're producing. Um, you said at its core, agile for data is an agile in general really is a mindset. Uh, and that you should identify the patterns that work for you and you should experiment with them and figure out the right sort of pattern that makes sense for you. Uh, following the script is not crucial, but obviously you can get a lot of benefit from really kind of getting experience and training in in certain patterns. Um, understand the value of the end users if they change their mind and you know they find that uh, um, you know that there's something else that they need then that's great uh, acknowledge the consequences and uh, and changes happen right so embrace change be dynamic documentation is important so you know you got a few different kinds of uh, of, of data approaches you've got a waterfall which we're trying to move away from ad hoc which a lot of teams are doing Scrum, which is sort of a, a good way to really get in the habit of doing agile data, right? And whether you're doing two or three week sprints or something different than that. Uh, and then ultimately, data work is very flow based. And so there's a flow based approach that can work here, whether Kanban or some other kind of derivative of that. So I think this is really great in terms of thinking of these different frameworks. And uh, Juan, what about you? What were your takeaways? Well, I got a couple here. So I really like thinking about this data as a supply chain, right? So when you're starting, like, let's actually document the work that we know that's going on. And, and, and I love how you're saying, let's go. The tasks that occur, their nodes and the how they're related, those are the edges. And let's just start with that and figure out what's not working, right? That's really going to help us to understand the whole process, where to start. And when it comes to the teams, is really, we want to have cross skills. So understand what are the primary skills, secondaries, and the skills that you don't want to go do. Find those overlaps and, and then amongst themselves, we can self-organize. Uh, and then we had that discussion that there's a, a lot of specialization that we need to be careful about that cross skill is important. And then this final discussion we had about data product, right? Really, what, what does the end user want to consume? They really want to consume is an answer to a question. And this is information that is going to help them make a decision. And when we think about data as a product is where the customer of that is, act, the customer wants the, the data. Therefore, the data needs to be discoverable, self-describing, uh, has to have quality contracts. But this notion of an information product is the consumer just wants the answer. So really understand exactly what the customer wants. Uh, and if they want a data, that they want to put data as a product. And an, an information product may be a consumer of a data as a product, a data product here. And I'm, I'm starting to make these connections with the data app. So I'm finding this something I really want to go dig into. And we had a quick discussion there on, on semantics and knowledge. And hey, hey, words matter. And this is what's really the piece that's lacking. Let's get this right from the beginning. I mean, actually, last week we were talking with, was it last week with Patricia Thane about uh, privacy? Like, you have to design with privacy first. And that's something that people are starting to go think about. We should start designing with knowledge first because that's going to help us avoid so many pitfalls going forward. All right, Shane, how did we do on, on our takeaways? Anything else did, did we miss? You did, no, you're spot on. Um, the one thing I forgot to mention is, is you know, there are lots of patents from the software engineering world that are useful to us. One that's really useful is the use of personas. So if we take a persona approach to who our customer is, we will find personas that are data literate and we will find personas who aren't. And that often drives the type of product we deliver to them. Um, so persona mapping and, and definitions of those presenters with a data lens, I find incredibly valuable as a pattern. That's spot on. I think that's something that we truly miss. And again, I think when you start to treat data as a product, right, just bring the product thinking, you're, you, are th you must be thinking for the personas. So, all right, Shane, very quickly, back to you. One, what's your advice? And second, who should we invite next? 
Um, so my advice, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. So either change what you're doing or how you're doing it. And that can apply in your personal life as well as in the data world. Um, so that's, that's the advice I suggest. Um, who should have on? So when I started my journey, there were a couple of books I read. Uh, one of them was written by Ralph Hughes and one by Ken Collier, um, which were the first books I could find that mashed up data and agile. Um, but that was a long time ago, and I'd be really interested to see if they're still playing in this space and whether they've iterated on their work. Um, but the one, the other person that I that I really would like to see on the show is Lawrence Core. Um, so Lawrence, again, wrote a book that I used from day one called Beam. It's all about uh, understanding how to, to understand a core business process using the who does what and mapping it from a data point of view. And it's a pattern that I've used for the last eight years incessantly. Uh, I encourage every team I work with to use it, and Lawrence is awesome. So Lawrence is probably the one I'd reach out because I know he's still active in, in this space. Uh, so what's the name of the book? Um, Beam, Business Event Analysis and Modeling. Now, Lawrence and I disagree about modeling technique. He's very dimensional focused and I'm very data vault focused. So you only read the first part of the book because the second part, he just talks about dimensional modeling all the time and he's so wrong. But, uh, but the first part. <laughs> I love this honest, no BS stuff. Perfect. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll post in the comments. It's the, I mean, last name Lawrence. Uh, first name Lawrence, last name Core, C-O-R-R. So if you if you um, all right Google Sarah, core, you're you're on the chat All right. Well, first of all, thank you. A quick next week. Remember, we are taking oh, so because Data Council Austin is in Austin, uh, we're actually taking a break. So we will not have a show next week. So uh, you can take a break from listening from us, uh, listen to another podcast, but come back and write and review and all that stuff. But remember, we're going to be in Austin. Uh, so if you're coming to Austin for Data Council, please let us know. We're going to have a special get-together on Tuesday, March 22nd at 7 p.m. Find us on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Send me an email. I'm Juan, J-U-A-N, at data.world. The following week, March 30th, we have Bob Muglia, who's the former CEO of Snowflake. Uh, an awesome, awesome individual who's just a leader. And we're going to be talking about why the future of data is knowledge. And Shane... Thank you so much. Fantastic discussion today. Uh, thanks to Data World for supporting Catalan Cocktails always. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a great rest of uh, Thursday. Uh, you're in the future and enjoy uh, St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Cheers. Excellent. Thank you. Cheers. And, and remember, as you say, all, all roads lead to Austin. <laughs> all roads lead to Austin. That's another, Indeed. another thing we need to have on a shirt. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Cheers, everyone. This is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Catalog and Cocktails fan base.